Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Recently, there has been a lot of important discussion about implicit bias and disparities in healthcare. But one population that is very affected by this is often left out of these conversations, and these are people with disabilities. People with disabilities constitute a marginalized population who experience significant healthcare disparities resulting from structural, socioeconomic, and attitudinal barriers to accessing healthcare. In the United States, disability is very common, affecting approximately 61 million people, or one in four. And yet, according to a report by the Office of the Surgeon General in 2005, our healthcare system is not adequately recognizing or addressing the needs of people with disabilities. And one possible factor is a lack of training in caring for these patients. And in an effort to begin the process of addressing that, we are talking about a recent AEM education and training paper entitled Emergency Medicine Resident Education on Caring for Patients with Disabilities, a Call to Action. First author, Dr. Jason Rotoli, is here to discuss it with us. Dr. Rotoli is the Associate Residency Director of the Emergency Medicine Residency at the University of Rochester. He is the Director of the Deaf Health Pathways, a medical student elective at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, which focuses on health disparities in the deaf community and teaching American Sign Language. We are excited to speak with him about this paper, and don't forget to read the full text of this article, which is available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Rotoli, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Your paper is both necessary and timely. Necessary because I'm sure I'm not the only physician who received absolutely no training on caring for patients with disabilities. And in my adult life, I've acquired some people in my life whom I love who have disabilities, one very visible, one not so visible. And it was only through them that I gave much thought into what receiving medical care is like for them. And even then, when I saw uh, one of your co-authors, Dr. Corey Poffenberger, give a, a an amazing talk at the Feminem Idea Exchange in 2018, I had my eyes open to so many behaviors of my own, that smack of ableism, and I, I hadn't even known that was a term until then. And now when I say timely, I mean, we're having a lot of discussions about diversity and inclusion in medicine, and I do not hear much about persons with disabilities being discussed, which is a problem. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. Right now is the perfect time to encourage people to recognize those with disabilities as a marginalized group. There's a lot in mainstream media regarding um, racial disparities and gender disparities, but really we never talk about disparities related to people with disabilities. By talking about it, by acknowledging it, we will hopefully realize that those with disabilities often face all sorts of different disparities in many facets of life, not just healthcare. And acknowledging that those with disabilities are marginalized, it can lead to their inclusion in discussions related to education, access to different resources, and advocacy. So first, the authors of this paper are part of the Accommodations Committee of the Academy for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Medicine, or ADIEM, of SAEM. 
So can you tell us about the goals of that committee? And um, I'm always interested in how people are drawn to particular research. How, how did you come to be a member of it? Uh, sure. I, I want to start off by saying that about half of the authors are members of ADIEM, and the rest of the authors are our residents and medical students who ah. are passionate about this topic. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> no problem. And and they're you know they're passionate because they have either had to navigate the medical system, uh, including medical school with a disability, or they are an advocate for those who struggle to do so. The Accommodations Committee itself is part of ADIEM, and uh, I am the founder of it. And I was really drawn to it due to my love uh, for advocating for the deaf American Sign Language user. That was my pathway into uh, looking into health disparities and to take a sort of larger platform and encompass a larger group of people who, who have these disparities. I came up with the Accommodations Committee with the help of all the members, many of whom are, are on the paper. So this paper is devoted to advocating for curricular reform at the undergraduate and GME levels in general and specifically in EM to, and this is a quote from your paper, to quote, ameliorate the provider knowledge gaps that can perpetuate barriers to equitable care for this group. So let's set the stage for the listener who has not given this much thought before. Just, you know, pretend it's me before I ever heard Dr. Poffenberger's lecture, which, by the way, is on YouTube. If anybody wants to find it, it's amazing. Um, so, so first, let's talk about current disparities. Can you give us a brief introduction to the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, what it mandates and protects, and how it defines disability? That's a, uh, an interesting question. So there are a lot of different definitions of disability. The ADA uses the legal definition of disability, which is an impairment that limits one or more major life activities. And I think this legal definition is intentionally broad so that it can encompass as many people as possible to provide legal protection for an underserved group. There are several titles within the ADA, but the more relevant titles are titles two and three, and they basically state that public and private hospitals must make reasonable accommodations to allow for access to care, whether that's creating anti-discrimination policies, creating wheelchair accessible entrances, or even providing language accommodations. So this would be a good time to teach us about the medical model viewing persons with disabilities as opposed to the social model, uh, which is something that I learned about in Dr. Poffenberger's lecture for the first time. I'm so glad you asked. So the medical model of disability, um, sort of like the medical mindset of everything else that we do, is to identify something as a problem or abnormal and then try to fix it. And this model does work in many situations. So if you have a broken femur, for example, it probably should be identified and fixed. However, it may not be the best model for understanding disability. And the reason I say that is that focusing only on what is different from the mainstream population can unintentionally magnify someone's difference, and that can cause them to feel or become even more marginalized. It can also enable ableism, which is essentially favoring able-bodied people over those with disabilities. Additionally, some people who are labeled with the medical or legal definition of disability don't actually identify as being disabled. And a perfect example of that is the culturally deaf community. This is a group of people who define themselves by a unique language, culture, life experiences, 
and not by hearing loss because they don't actually feel like they've lost anything. I, I think a, a better approach would maybe to use the WHO definition of disability, which focuses more on the way society is organized and structured and how that impacts the person instead of focusing on individual impairments. It is okay to acknowledge the difference, but more importantly, we should move toward understanding the person's abilities instead of disabilities and how to better accommodate them within our society. Thank you. What else can you tell us about disparities in care? Is there research or data that we should be aware of? Well, we do have uh, plenty of research and data to show that like many other marginalized groups, uh, such as people of color, those with disabilities have higher comorbidities and chronic disease. For example, they have higher rates of obesity, higher rates of hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. This group also has lower access to primary and preventative care despite having higher needs, so lower access to screening pap smears or mammograms. And this is unfortunate, especially for a group who may actually have higher incidence of chronic disease. Hmm. And what about emergency medicine in particular? With regards to emergency medicine, there is literature, although it's a little bit more limited, but we do know that people with disabilities have higher rates of emergency department visits. They also have higher risks of being victims of intimate partner violence and sexual assault. And there's even data to suggest that there is less awareness of disaster preparedness and that's demonstrated by lower rates of evacuation during natural disasters and even poor access to sign language interpreted information during this uh, COVID pandemic. You know, that became very personal to me. In the last month, I have an aunt who has to use a wheelchair and she lives in California and there was all sorts of talk about evacuation and it became um, a real problem thinking about how she could be evacuated, where she could stay safely during COVID times. Um, it, it just really, it, it took on a whole new meaning for me. Um, and again, thinking about things that I had the privilege of never having had to think about before. And unfortunately, during these uh, pandemics or, or um, uh, times of need, our marginalized groups um, are even more marginalized and they're disparities become even more evident. Yeah. So currently, what are medical students taught about caring for persons with disabilities? It sounds sounds like not very much, but it sounds like there are some groundbreaking programs at a few schools. Yeah. So there are some medical schools who have that have comprehensive longitudinal programs on how to care for patients with disabilities. Uh, for example, the University at Buffalo has has education in their first and second year, and then hands-on simulation and rotations in their third and fourth year. And, and many medical schools now do have some disability-related content. Uh, for example, the annual death day at the University of Rochester is where all first-year medical students are placed into a role reversal exercise, where essentially all the medical students are in a hospital where everyone is deaf and uses American Sign Language, but the hearing student has to figure out how to navigate through the system. So I, I, I think that there are examples of that happening in the medical schools throughout the country. But according to the AAMC survey in 2016, there really was still a small percentage of medical schools with explicit longitudinal curriculum dedicated to the care of patients with disabilities. And how about at the GME level? 
Well, there is a mention of caring for patients with disabilities in one of the core competencies to graduate from residency, but unfortunately, it seems to be even less structured at the GME level. There, there's not um, dedicated guidelines for disability curriculum development or requirements by the ACGME. Yeah. So in your paper, you do make some suggestions about potential improvements on the EM residency milestones. And you make an interesting point about cultural humility. Can you tell us a little bit about the proposed changes to how we teach this and why a cultural humility vantage point is important? Sure. In general, all the suggestions that we made were to allow for both recognition that this is a skill you need to be a successful physician and provide equitable care, but also it's an objective measurement on how one is doing with regards to that skill. So this is similar to learning how to complete a laceration repair. There are clear steps that one takes in achieving proficiency. Now, I purposely avoided using the word competency here because as we are seeing in the literature, there has been a real shift away from cultural competency and toward cultural awareness or humility. And that is to say, you you cannot actually be competent in a culture because culture is not a static thing. There isn't a list of do's and don'ts to follow per se. Well, maybe there's a list of don'ts. (laughs) (laughs) But, but culture is an ever-evolving process that requires dedication to lifelong learning. And a better approach is to sort of be aware of that change and to learn how to change with it. Fantastic. Um, and so other than curricular changes, what else can programs do to increase their faculty and trainee skill level in caring for this population? Yeah, this is a a great question, and I I think it's important to identify local resources, and whether that's resources within your university or hospital, or whether it's community resources. These resources may know more than you as a a residency program director, and um, they can help guide the way. Developing a partnership with these local resources really has a lot of benefits. You know, it creates a sense of trust within the local community. It might redefine people's perception of those with disabilities if, you know, physician residents are are seeing an expert in a teaching role and that person themselves has a disability. And it also may allow for more accurate information exchange from an expert source. Great. So as long as we're talking about don'ts, (laughs) um, you know, I, I really feel like most physicians, you know, we really we really do mean well. You know, we want to take care of people as best we can. We are caring individuals. We never want to make a patient feel less than in any way. Um, And so one, I think that your work to help us recognize our implicit biases in these situations is is very important. Um, But we also, you know, I think we do inadvertently when we're we're not, thinking or trained to think in these terms. Um, I think sometimes we do use language um, that can be hurtful. Um, and so can can we talk for a second about, um, about language that physicians should be mindful of when we are caring for patients with disabilities? I'm sure there's a lot, um, but maybe you could just give us a few examples that could be eye-opening. Or maybe do you have a particular story that emphasizes the importance of these educational changes? Just can you bring it, um, just help me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, I think in general, 
it, it is important to acknowledge that somebody has a difference or a disability without dwelling on it or making your entire history, physical exam and interaction about it. If it is relevant to the chief complaint, if they are someone with a visual impairment, uh, but maybe is not completely visually impaired and there's been a change, it's important to acknowledge that change if it's relevant. Um, the same thing for a deaf patient. If they are, if they have some residual hearing and they are there for ringing in the ear or they have an ear-related complaint, it's okay to ask about that without dwelling on it. If, they, if that person is there for something completely different, there's really no need to bring that into the conversation. I don't have a particular story, but for me, the easiest one to, uh, in terms of terms to avoid would be avoid using the term hearing impaired when you're talking to a culturally deaf person. As I mentioned before, in general, the culturally deaf person does not identify as being impaired. They haven't lost anything, and if anything, they truly embrace their deafhood. I use the term hearing impaired for a hearing person who has acquired hearing loss and does actually feel impaired by that. So I would say use the term deaf or hard of hearing. Um, it's not only okay to say, it's actually preferred to say. That is actually good to know. I did not know that. So thank you very much. <laughs> sure. um, so what comes next for, for you and the committee? Where, where, do we, where do we go from here? So I would say right now we are working on increasing awareness through education at the regional and national level through the Academy of Diversity and Inclusion, which is part of uh, the Society for Amer Academic Emergency Medicine. We are uh, just, sorry, we just participated in a research study out of Stanford with Dr. Poffenberger that was accepted for publication. And it investigated the prevalence of disabilities in the United States emergency medicine residency programs. I'd say overall, our goal is to increase awareness and education and hope that it leads to meaningful change. Well, thank you so much uh, for this paper and for your work. I think it's truly eye-opening um, and very important. So thanks again for talking with us. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this AEM Education and Training Podcast. Be sure to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to all our AEM podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.